Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of our worship services today. And I hope that all of you had a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, and had an opportunity to spend time with family and with friends. And I hope that it was a wonderful time for all of you. But we are excited that you're back here and with us for worship this morning. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark chapter 9, and we will be focusing our attention this morning on verses 30 through 41. Mark 9, verses 30 through 41. And as you're turning there, my, my, my preparation for this morning's sermon really brought my recollections and my remembrances back to uh, a day in September of 1987 when I graduated from boot camp in the United States Navy. I recall that morning getting up and, and, and really the first time that I and as well as the rest of my company were able to actually put on our dress white uniforms. And as we were fidgeting with those things and trying to get the kerchief tied just right and making sure that our shoes looked right, our company commander walked up and down the barracks. And as he walked, I never will forget, he scuffed his feet on the floor. I think he did it on purpose because we had to come behind him and buff that out. But... He, he would scuff his feet across the floor and he was looking at us with like some kind of attention to detail, making sure everything was just right. And he would bark out things to us in really colorful language if things didn't look exactly the way that he thought that they should. But the thing that I recall him saying that day that I have never forgotten went something along the lines of this. He said, gentlemen, today you will leave these barracks as sailors in the United States Navy. And he said, that uniform that you're wearing has been worn by countless sailors before you, some of whom died while wearing it. Therefore, gentlemen, do not dishonor that uniform. When you leave here wearing it, he said, do so knowing that you are representing not only yourself, but those who have worn it before you and the entire United States Navy. Now, his words obviously have stuck with me for now some 30 years, if my math's right. I've often reflected upon what he said, and, and particularly as his words emphasize the, the responsibility that an individual has to be a good representative, to be a good ambassador for Chief Petty Officer Caldwell, that was his name, a sailor in uniform had the responsibility to represent the entire United States Navy and to do it well. Over the years, my reflection on that subject has intensified, particularly, particularly when I have considered that as Christians, we too are representatives. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. In other words, what Paul reminds us is that every believer, he, he or she is a true representation of Christ to the world around them. And in fact, what, what that really means is, is in some respects, that old phrase is this, you are the only Jesus some people will ever see. How you act, how you respond. That's the way that people will, what they come to know about Jesus, they learn from you. Therefore, what you value, what motivates you, how you treat others, all of those things and more contribute to how the world understands who Jesus is and the difference that He makes in our lives. 
Unfortunately, though, if we're honest, Christians do not always represent Christ as well as we should. We make mistakes. Unfortunately, those mistakes often hurt our testimony. They compromise our Christian witness. One writer I read this week put it this way. He says, one would hope that Christians of all people would provide a good recommendation for Christianity. But sometimes, rather than helping people come to Christ, we get in the way. If only our lives were as attracted as the Christ we claim to follow, he writes. To put it in the words of Chief Petty Officer Caldwell, the unfortunate thing is, is there are times when we dishonor our uniform. In our text this morning that we're going to look at here in Mark chapter 9, we're going to see three uniform dishonoring mistakes that are made by the disciples. Mistakes that, quite frankly, you and I are also prone to making. And what we're going to realize is that these kind of mistakes, they are the kind that, that make us not represent Christ very well to a lost and a dying world. In fact, the mistakes that we are going to see displayed before us are the kinds of mistakes that we must avoid if we would lead people to Christ. We must avoid them if we truly desire to be good ambassadors for Christ. And so with that as an introduction and to kind of set the stage for us, let's pick up and read there in verse 30 of Mark chapter 9 down through verse 41. The Bible says this, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? They kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and the servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness. Now we pray that as we open it and we study it, that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth that is there. Lord, it would not just be information that we would receive, but rather it would be transformational information, that it would transform our lives into being more like Jesus. This is our prayer as Christians, that we would reflect Christ more each and every day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
as I, as I read and sort of contemplated this passage, and I've been actually thinking and reading it and studying it now for, for a few weeks, I found this to be interesting. As the disciples made their way with Jesus to Capernaum, there was one thing really they didn't want to talk about. But then there were at least a couple of things that they did want to talk about. And sadly, the very thing that they didn't want to talk about should have been what they were focusing on. And the things that they wanted to talk about should have been the farthest things from their minds. It was sort of that process of thought that, that led me to the outline that I, I provided for you this morning. And I think that in, it, what, in this passage, what we see is that the, the disciples struggle with some of the very same things that we often struggle with in our lives. And so in pointing out their struggles this morning, I'm not trying to, to shoot arrows at them and just beat the disciples up. Really what I want to do is by exposing the, the issues and the struggles and the mistakes that they make, I really want us to expose our own struggles and our own mistakes in our own lives and help us be able to see that. So with that being said, notice the first point on your outline this morning because the first mistake that I believe the disciples are guilty of is this. It's failing to focus on the cross. Failing to focus... On the cross. If you were with us last Sunday, you'll remember that we looked at verse 31 in detail from this passage. In it, Jesus predicts his soon coming death and his resurrection. In fact, we noted that this is the second time of three different times here, once in chapter 8, here in chapter 9, and again in chapter 10, that Jesus predicts this coming event of his death and his resurrection. He says that he will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Now, for us, that appears about as plain and self-explanatory as it can be, right? I mean, for us, we understand exactly what Jesus was discussing. From our perspective, it is obvious that Jesus was speaking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. But for the disciples, it was not so easy for them to understand. In fact, verse 32 says explicitly that they did not understand what Jesus said and they were afraid to ask him. Jeff Thomas has written this. He says, what this tells us is that the disciples' spirits were out of tune with Jesus' spirit. Prior to his crucifixion, the disciples questioned, how could the Son of God ever be killed by men? He, after all, has the power over death. How could he be the one to suffer? At this point, the disciples simply could not get their minds wrapped around a suffering and murdered Messiah. If you'll remember, that was at the heart of Simon Peter's rebuke of Jesus back in chapter 8. But you'll also remember that Jesus in turn rebuked Peter. And in his rebuke of Peter, he even told him, listen, my, my death is going to have natural ramifications for you and for everyone else who will choose to follow me. In other words, not, it's just not going to be me that suffers and dies. If you, would, if you would come after me, he says, you would have to deny yourself, pick up your cross... And follow me, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And then Jesus asked this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus' words could have not been any clearer. And it was obvious that he was deeply serious about what he spoke would come and would happen about his suffering and his death on the cross. He was totally committed to the goal. But whenever that subject came up between him and his disciples, 
there was disharmony. There was disharmony in chapter 8. There's disharmony here in chapter 9 because they're, they're fearful. They don't want to talk to Him about it. We see the same thing that will happen again in chapter 10. When Jesus wants to discuss it with His disciples, they shrink back, wall themselves off, and do not want to talk about it with Jesus. What's evident is that Jesus knows what's in front of Him. And He's directing the attention of His disciples to the cross. But they don't understand it. Nor do they like it. And so they refuse to talk to Him about it. His words make them uneasy and His mark makes it clear here they are fearful. The truth is, it was easier for them to ignore the hard teaching of Jesus regarding the cross. It was easier for them to avoid the discussion of it and its ramifications for, for their lives than it was for them to talk about it with Jesus and to embrace its truth. And I believe that you and I also make that same similar mistake in our lives. We too fail to focus on the cross. Jesus' words back in chapter 8 regarding denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus, they're just as valid. They are just as true for us as they were for those disciples. The cross is not only to be at the very center of our worship, but it is also to be at the very center of our lives. The cross must be at the very core of who we are as Christians. But as Philip Graham Ryken has written, too often we take our eyes off the cross. We are not satisfied with Jesus, he writes. Instead, we want all the other things that life has to offer. We are not willing to suffer the embarrassment of talking about Jesus with friends or to risk harming our careers by taking a stand on a biblical principle or to give up the comforts of life that we, as we know it to take the gospel to the far places of the world. He says we do not want to suffer even for Jesus. And so we take our eyes off the cross. The discussion of the cross scared the disciples. They were fearful. And no doubt... The thought of sacrifice and suffering is scary to us as well. Even so, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 that we are called to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He repeats the same kind of thing there in Galatians 6 verse 14. He says we are to boast in nothing, boast in nothing except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Consequently, the cross and the sacrifice that it demanded of Christ, but that it also demands of each and every one of us who are Christ's followers, means that the cross must remain at the center of our lives, at the core of our evangelism. It must remain at the core of our stewardship. It must remain at the core of our missions. The cross must remain at the core of our family life. It must remain at the core of how we go out and serve others. In fact, for Christians, any time that the cross is not at the center of our focus, we lose sight of the sacrifice that Christ made for us, and then we lose sight of the fact that He has also called us to live that same life of sacrifice for others. So that, that is the first mistake that we see the disciples make in this passage. And it's a mistake that we often make as well. It is the mistake of failing to focus on the cross. And it is a mistake that compromises our Christian witness. 
And it is a mistake that quickly and quite necessarily then leads to a second mistake that we see in our text. So I want you to notice the second mistake that we note this morning on your outline, and it's this, it's seeking your own glory. Failing to focus on the cross will inevitably and necessarily lead to a second mistake of seeking your own glory. Now what we learn from verse 33 of our text is that though the disciples didn't want to discuss the sacrificial nature of the cross with Jesus, they did have other more pressing issues that they wanted to discuss among themselves. And what's obvious is that along the road to Capernaum, the disciples were having a spirited debate among themselves. And we know this because having arrived at Capernaum, Jesus asked them a very pointed question. He says, what was it that you disputed or what was it that you discussed among yourselves on the road? Now, I want to point out a very necessary implication from that question that we need to note. We've already noted that Jesus' disciples were not in tune with His Spirit. Their spirits were not in tune with His spirits because their hearts and minds were not focused on the upcoming crucifixion and resurrection and the suffering and the sacrifice that accompanied that. But the fact that these disciples were discussing something else, something that they obviously did not want Jesus to hear them talking about, so when they argued about it amongst themselves, they tried to remain as far out of earshot from Jesus as they could, what that tells us is that not only were their spirits out of tune with Jesus' spirits, but their steps were out of step with His. They, they allowed Jesus Christ, the Savior, to, to kind of be on His own walking there because they had other more important things to discuss, and so they tried to remain out of earshot. But I want you to notice their actions and their discussion did not go unnoticed by Jesus. That's why Jesus asked them about it. But what I want you to note is that they had an embarrassment that went along with this question. He asked them what they were talking about on the road, but in their shame, verse 34 tells us that they kept silent. For on the road, they had disputed. They had argued among themselves who would be the greatest. There was no lack of conversation on the road. But now that they were in the house and Jesus confronts them with what they were discussing, you ever had that happen with your kids? Man, I have. You can hear something going on up there in the room and... There's all kinds of chattering and arguing. You can tell that they're in a fuss and you don't know what's going on in here. Nothing. It's all good, Dad. Everything's fine. What I want you to do, though, is think about how upside down this conversation was that the disciples were having. Jesus had pointed to his future suffering and crucifixion. And he had told his disciples that they must also travel that same path. They, however, refused to focus on the cross. They took their eyes off of it, and instead they focused their attention on themselves, debating among themselves who was the greatest among them. Perhaps it was Peter who first said, well, you guys, you know, Jesus has already said that I was going to be the rock upon whom he built his church. So, you know, come on. I've got to be first, right? And John may have said, he's always referring to me as the disciple that he loves, Peter, so... You know, you, you obviously can't be first. Or it could have been Judas who said, I'm the treasurer. I'm the one who's got all the money. Obviously, he thinks I'm very important because I get to manage all of this. We don't know what all took place. All we know is that they were arguing back and forth. And regardless of how the conversation started, this is quite honestly and utterly a disappointing and sickening scene in which the disciples come off as petty and jealous and conceited and completely self-seeking and self-serving. 
Jesus had called for self-sacrifice and they in turn were engaged in self-glorification. And the truth is we might easily write the whole lot of them off if we weren't so much like them. Unfortunately, seeking your own glory is not a mistake that is only made by the disciples. I have been in denominational meetings and pastor conventions and conferences where everyone just stares at name tags. They look to see who the pastor is and what church he's pastoring because for many times, pastors and clergy sometimes are deemed important and famous people. The unfortunate truth is that personality promotion and self-seeking glory are prominent activities among ministers. Kent Hughes describes the sad truth this way. He says, there is a mindset that defines ministry as a kind of lordship. Sitting in the honored seat, being in the distinguished guest at luncheon, speaking to vast throngs, building monuments and collecting honorary titles. This type of attitude values being served. For those caught up in such thinking, Christianity exists to give me eternal life. It's to increase my physical health. It's to coddle my body. It's to enlarge my power. And it is to elevate my prestige. But friends, I want you to know that is not the way of the cross. Philippians 2, there we get one of the clearest commands in Scripture and one of the clearest pictures in Scripture that tells us we are not to go out seeking our own glory. The Apostle Paul writes this in verse 3 of Philippians 2. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. There's your command. And then he gives us the picture that we can compare that to. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearances of man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Brothers and sisters, when you and I fail to focus our attention on the cross, we will inevitably begin to seek our own glory. It happened with the disciples. It will happen with us. And when it does, know that we are out of tune and we are out of step with the Lord Jesus. Notice how Jesus responds to his disciples. They, they haven't said anything. They're sitting there just as quiet as they can be. Jesus breaks the awkward silence in verse 35 by saying this, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Obviously, Jesus knew what they were talking about on the road. And now they knew that he knew. He tells them, look, if you want to be first, you've got to be willing to be last. He'll say something very similar to this in In chapter 10, verses 43 and 44, he says, Whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever of you desires to be first must be slave of all. There's a great picture of how this plays out and what it looks like in John chapter 13. This was the night before Jesus was arrested and taken away and and crucified. That night, Jesus would, would, would be betrayed by Judas. He would ultimately be handed over to 
the Jewish leaders, they would in turn hand him over to the Romans who would, who would beat him and mock him and ultimately crucify him. But on that last night together, Jesus and his disciples, they walked into a room that had been prepared for them. The dirt and the filth and the grime of the Jewish streets were all over their sandals and all over their feet. And in that room was a basin filled with water and there was a long towel that was laid there for the express purpose of having their feet washed. Yet no one in the room took it upon themselves to bend over and to wash anyone else's feet. No one except for Jesus. The Bible says that he stripped himself down, wrapped himself into that long towel, and then he bent down and systematically made his way around the room washing the dirt and the grime and the filth off of the feet of his disciples. The very hands that had stretched the stars into space now picked up the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples, washing the dirt and filth off of them. That was a task that was befitting only of a slave. And what that picture shows us and what the picture tells us is that that, is, that act is totally out of, totally devoid of self-promotion. It's totally devoid of self-glory. Rather, it is a perfect illustration of what Jesus says here back in John, excuse me, back in Mark's gospel. He says that if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Notice that Mark also tells us that he brings a child into the room. We don't know who the child is. But what we do read is that Jesus grabs him up, puts him in his arms. And then in verse 37, he says this, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus is enacting a parable right here in front of the disciples, whether they realized it or not. As R.T. Francis put, has written, in, in that society and culture, a child represented the lowest order in the social scale. Unlike our culture where children are, are celebrated and, and doted over and coddled, it was not so in the ancient Near Eastern cultures. There in the hard world where manual labor was necessary for survival, a child that was too small to contribute to the household was often seen more as a liability than it was as an asset. However, as France puts it, when Jesus does what he does here, his injunction to receive the child in effect reversed the conventional value scale that was accorded importance and unimportant. In this passage, Jesus wasn't telling his disciples to be as a child as he does in other places. Rather, he was telling them to be like him. He's like, be like me, who, who is willing to receive those that are not important, not to receive those who are not socially upward, to receive those who are not highly esteemed. Brothers and sisters, to be like Jesus, we must not seek our own glory, always trying to be first. Rather, we must be willing to be last, taking up the basin and the towel, serving those who cannot serve us back. It is in these acts that we are the most like Christ. We should remember that our response to the hungry, the thirsty, the lonely, the naked, the sick, the imprisoned. In other words, those who are not in a position to do anything to serve us. Our response to them is our response to God. Those were the words of Jesus in Matthew 25. 
Whatever you did to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did to me. Unfortunately, that's not always our mindset. It's not the mindset of the disciples either. Such a mistake compromises our Christian witness. So that's the second mistake that we see in our text. Now let's notice the third one. The third mistake that the disciples, the disciples make is this. They were engaging in the wrong fight. Beginning in verse 38, John describes something that had occurred in the past and that either he is now confessing to Jesus, that is the way some scholars view what he writes here, or he is trying to get Jesus to comment and to confirm that he did the right thing. Either way, John alludes to something that happened in which he was trying to establish the fact that he and the other disciples were the disciples of Jesus. Notice what he says in verse 38. Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. Notice that John's chief concern in this verse is whether the man, not whether he followed Jesus or not. His chief concern was whether he followed the other disciples. The personal pronoun us is key to this verse. The disciples forbade the man from casting out demons in Jesus' name because the man didn't follow them. Kent Hughes, again, he notes that here we have an apostolic example of ministerial intolerance and jealousy that reveals the origin of so much of the exclusivism and narrowness that we experience. Let me, let me put that in North Hall language. They didn't want anybody else getting any glory for anything that they couldn't get glory for themselves. Apparently, disciples, they had encountered this man who was a believer in Jesus, but he must not have been as informed as they were. But he was casting out demons in Jesus' name, but the disciples put a cease and desist order on him. What I find ironic about that story is that the disciples wanted to stop this man from doing exactly what they had been unable to do just a few verses prior. You remember when, they came, when, when, when Jesus came back down from the Mount of Transfiguration, they had a boy who was possessed with a demon, demonic spirit that was causing him to seize up all the time and kept him from talking and was throwing him into the fire and throwing him into the water. And the disciples, every one of them had taken their shot to try to deliver this boy of the demon and had been powerless to do so. Here, they stop a man from delivering people from demons. Rather than rejoicing in his successes at being able to perform exorcism in Jesus' name, the disciples are instead reminded of their own failure and they resentfully demand that he stop doing what they themselves had been unable to do. One writer put it this way, What such an action reveals is that the disciples saw their call as a disciple, not as a call to service, but as an entitlement of privilege and exclusion. This incident reminds us of just how ugly jealousy and intolerance can be. Chuck Swindoll writes about it this way. This one hurts me. Might hurt you, but it hurt me first. So, okay, let me say it up front. He writes this. He said, it is a curious fact that jealousy is a tension often found among professionals, the gifted, the highly competent. You know, doctors, singers, artists, lawyers, businessmen and women, authors, entertainers, preachers, educators, politicians, and all public figures. Strange, isn't it, that such capable folk 
find it nearly impossible to applaud others in their own field who excel a shade more or two than they. Jealousy's fangs may be hidden, but take care when the creature coils, no matter how cultured and dignified it may appear. Wow. Unfortunately, what happens when such jealousy and suspicion appears is that we, intend, we, we tend to engage in the wrong fight. But notice what Jesus said to John in response. He says, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For who is not against us is on our side. And for whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. As Riken has written, the man casting out demons was not against their ministry, and therefore they had no business trying to stop him. In fact, this was a greater sin than anything that might have been wrong with the other man's ministry. And what it tells us is that the disciples were engaged in the wrong fight. Now listen, let me be very clear about this. Whenever there is doctrinal error, whenever the fundamentals of the faith are attacked or disregarded, any time, any time that there is a gospel presented that deviates from salvation that comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, any time that sin is disregarded as something that's inconsequential or worse, something even to be embraced, then we as believers have a responsibility to expose such heresy and those who teach it. But as Christians, we must be careful not to engage in battle with other Christians. As J.C. Ryle has written, we must be wary of the petty self-conceit that says no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears our uniform and fights in our regiment. Instead, we must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down through the work that, though the work may be done not exactly in the way that we like. Above all, we must praise God if souls are being converted and Christ is magnified no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. Philip Ryken put it this way. He says, make no mistake, other Christians are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. And we should do everything we can to encourage other Christians in their battle against him. We are in a holy alliance against the powers of darkness. And rather than having us attack one another, our supreme commander orders us to keep fighting the right enemy. Brothers and sisters, whenever we fail at that endeavor, we damage our witness to a lost and a dying world who looks on from the outside. So those are the three mistakes that we see the disciples make in this passage and they're mistakes that we too are prone to make in our own lives and our own ministries. And what that then leads us to recognize is that whenever we make those mistakes, we fail to represent Christ as we should. When we fail to focus on the cross, we pursue our satisfaction instead of other things that we should be pursuing. We tell the world around us that Jesus' sacrifice is not enough. And we personally fail to engage in sacrificial service that lead, lead others to Christ. 
when we seek our own glory. We once again fail to engage in sacrificial service that points others to Christ. And worse, we conceal a vision of our Savior that is as great and glorious as it ought to be. And then when we engage in the wrong fight, we utilize all our energies and we spend them fighting fellow believers and we ultimately come off as petty and self-serving and we drive folks away rather than drawing them in. Therefore, considering these mistakes and their consequences, I'm led to share with you my sermon in a sentence this morning and I'll conclude with this. My sermon in a sentence is this. To avoid mistakes that compromise our witness, we must focus on the cross and the sacrifice it demands. Be willing to serve others, put ourselves last, and not criticize or tear down the work of fellow believers who seek to glorify Christ. This morning, I ask you who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to consider this text, to contemplate it, to chew on it, to let it soak into your spirit. And in the words of my chief petty officer Caldwell, I would beg of you, as Christians who, as Paul has said, have put on Christ, I would beg you, do not dishonor that uniform. Represent Christ well in how you live. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father.